Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm glad you're listening this morning. I've never talked a whole lot on this show about the church. I mentioned a few weeks ago that we do a lot of surveys with incoming freshmen each year, and those surveys typically tell us that students have a very high view of Jesus. In fact, last fall, we found that the incoming freshmen had the highest view of Jesus of any freshman that we've ever interviewed. That was exciting and interesting, and it affirmed that we can't ruin Jesus' reputation, that Jesus himself maintains a good reputation. And I think that's because he has answers, and he lived a life here on this planet, and he told us how to live lives here on this planet, and he gave us a hope that nobody's ever given, neither before nor since. He did all that, and it's hard to screw that up. Unfortunately, however, our surveys also indicate that people have a very poor view of the church. So they might have a high view of Jesus, but that doesn't translate necessarily to his followers. You've probably seen the bumper sticker that says, Lord, save me from your followers. It is a typical sentiment that is expressed by many. And Christians have done a very good job of ruining their reputation with the world. That has transferred to the church, this institution that people have seen in a very negative light for many, many years now. Well, I wanted to talk about the church today. I don't think I can clear its bad rap in half an hour, but I do think I can give you a few things to think about as you consider the church. Now, the church has had a bad reputation, like I said, and it has rightfully earned a lot of that bad reputation. Before I get to its own role in the bad reputation, though, I wanted to mention some of the misconceptions that have given the church a bad reputation. One of the foremost misconceptions that I know of is the so-called separation of church and state. Now, I have mentioned that on the show before, and if you remember, it is not something that's anywhere in our Constitution. It's sad that this has pervaded the American psyche, even though it's in none of our founding documents. It actually comes from a letter from Thomas Jefferson that is attempting to defend religious liberty and expression, not to limit it. And even after the time of our founding, many states persisted for decades with state religions and state-sponsored churches, indicating and proving that the so-called Establishment Clause, the separation of church and state, does not exist to limit religious expression, rather to protect it. So in our country, the government is not allowed to force you to be a member of any particular church, but neither is it allowed to limit religious expression. If you tuned in last week, you heard me talking about true tolerance, and I mentioned how Several thousand crosses were stolen from Chapman Hill. This project was approved by the city, and these crosses, which myself and my daughters helped put up, were there to bring awareness to the children that die every day of starvation. It's a terrible tragedy. We have 19,000 children a day dying of starvation around the world. These crosses were there to bring attention to that and to give people opportunities to make a difference and to help end child poverty 
and all the incredible negative effects of child poverty. People tore down those crosses. They stole them. And I was shocked to read in the newspaper that the city apologized to any that might have been offended by the crosses. I thought, what a backwards city. What a backwards culture. What a backwards society. We have approval to do something. We get vandalized. And it is the criminals, supposedly, that are apologized to. It's an incredibly backward mentality based on the misconception of a separation of church and state, which is nowhere in the founding documents. That being said, that's just one of the misconceptions that has given the church a bad name. Another is that the church is unscientific. That's wrong. Like I've said many times before, my undergraduate degree is in chemistry, and science and faith go hand in hand, I believe. There are other reasons that the church has a bad reputation with the world. Throughout history, people in the name of God have committed many atrocities. I've discussed on this show in the past how some of those have been blown out of proportion and how they've been exaggerated, for example, the Inquisition. But those were negative nonetheless. Those tragedies were really tragic. And it'd be crazy just to shrug them off. In addition to that... (laughs) We need to remember that we can't judge a philosophy by its abuse. We must judge it by its correct application. And I'll come back to that again. But the reality is that in the name of God, even though it was incorrectly done in his name because he did not endorse any of it, when Jesus says to love your enemies and to pray for them, it's wrong to turn around and kill them and persecute them. But people in his name, the church in specific, has done that very thing, incurring, rightfully so, a negative reputation. The church also, in the past, has exercised domineering control, which was ungodly and incorrect. It has participated in extravagant excesses. This was one of the causes of the turmoil that led to the Protestant Revolution back In the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, the church was living luxurious, sinful lifestyles. And that gave the church a very poor reputation that it's never truly recovered from. The church has also been manipulative in the past, forcing people to believe, regardless of their position, forcing them to believe, threatening them with consequences if they don't. Those historical deviations from God's plan have been incredibly negative, and they've given the church a very poor reputation. Even in modern times, the church has often deviated from God's plan. There's been an apparent disregard for science. I mentioned before that this is a bit of a misconception, but I think a lot of churches have perpetuated that misconception by actually fighting against things that we don't need to fight against and making it look like the church is against intellectualism, or against knowledge, or against science, or against history, or against learning, or against whatever. That's not the case. Additionally, there have been many modern examples of hypocrisy. Everybody's heard of the pastors that have been caught in adultery and so many other terrible sins. Billy Graham was asked about this, and He said every day thousands and thousands of airplanes take off and land safely. The only ones we hear about are those that crash. It was an incredible metaphor for what we see. Nobody hears of the 
thousands of ministers that live lives of integrity, but we do hear of those that fail, and those have given the church a very poor reputation. In addition to this, the church has assumed a holier-than-thou ethos, a self-righteous type of reputation that people don't like, and rightfully so. That has created a context where the church seems literally irrelevant to most people. People see the church as just holding on to the past and irrelevant for today, just a waste of time and something that is needless to get involved with. They've also seen a lack of love in the church. The church preaches love, but oftentimes exemplifies hate and exemplifies disunity among themselves and animosity for those outside its walls. All this has led to the conclusion for many that the church lacks authenticity, that it's saying one thing and doing something totally different. This is the picture that I think many people have in their minds that leads them to a perspective that thinks negatively of the church. And it's this perspective that the church has, in many times, rightfully deserved that I want to address today. With that in mind, I want to remind you once more that we should never judge a philosophy by its abuse. Rather, we should judge it by its correct application. And many of these issues that I've described that have hurt the reputation of the church are abuses of the church, and they go contrary to the way the Bible says a church should operate. And when we evaluate a church, I think we should evaluate it in terms of what it is supposed to be biblically, and then to decide based on that whether or not it's a good thing. And if it is, to find a church that functions in that way. And I'll tell you right now, there are churches like that, even right here in Durango. There are churches that will function in a biblical way, not according to this bad reputation that so many people have in their minds. So I wanted to talk about what the biblical perspective of a church is, but before I get there, I wanted to tell you that if you've been negatively impacted by the church, I, as a Christian, want to apologize for that and say I'm sorry. And I think many pastors would line up right behind me to tell you the exact same thing. We're sorry for how the church has mistreated you many times in the past. Every year, I talk to students that say, I had questions growing up. I had issues that I was dealing with. And I went to the church, and they said, don't ask those questions. Don't dress like that. Don't talk like that. Don't say those words. Don't hang out with those people. Don't be friends with those people. Reject those people. And because of that, they've left the church. I'm sorry if you've ever been treated negatively by the church like so many others have. And I beg you not to assume that those negative attributes of the church are attributes of Christ. Christ is so uniquely different than those negative perspectives and those negative attributes of the church. So what is the church really supposed to be? Well, the Bible defines the church using the word ecclesia in the New Testament. The word ecclesia in the New Testament is a Greek word that literally means called out ones. 
and it referred to groups. It wasn't necessarily just for churches. In Acts 19, we see this word referring to a mob that was actually trying to kill Paul. So it was not just a word for Christian churches, but it was a Greek word that was understood by many in that society. It literally meant a called out group, and it was a civic word, and it described those that were called out of their houses by a herald to do civic business. That was the meaning of the word, and thus the groups were called out groups. Now, in Acts 19, that could refer to a mob that had been called out to riot and to be violent against the Apostle Paul and other Christians, or it could refer to groups of people that were called out to do voting or business or whatever it might be, or in the case of the church, it was a group that was called for a purpose. That was the Greek definition of the word, but it didn't just end there because that's the Greek word that was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that all believers of that time were familiar with. And in that manuscript, it was used to translate the Old Testament principle of the congregation of God's people, so the group of God's people. And thus, the word ecclesia in the New Testament had this incredibly deep meaning. It was, one, a group that was called according to a specific purpose, and two, it was the group that represented the congregation of God himself. So this was a deep word, and it had a lot of meaning, and everybody during that time would have understood that it had a lot of meaning. The congregation of the Lord called out for a specific purpose. In addition to this, the Bible describes what the local church was supposed to look like. And it's very incredible to see what the local church was supposed to look like. In Acts 2, 42 through 47, we read, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This biblical picture of the local church is incredible. And it shows us a group of people that were so committed to each other that they were exemplifying true and authentic love that they were selling their possessions to meet each other's needs. They were living in harmony where nobody had a need at all because everyone was sharing their resources to make sure that there were no needs. In addition to this, they were sharing their time together, fellowshipping together, eating together, praying together, praising God together, learning from God together. And then they were sharing the message of Christ with those around them, and because of the example that they portrayed, and because of the truth and the hope of the gospel, they were growing rapidly. In fact, in the first century AD, it's estimated that that group of people was able to reach 30% of the world's population for Christ. Today, we're at that same level, 30% of the world's population. So this early church did in less than a century what the rest of us have failed to do ever since. So this church was an incredible organism that was giving life and energy and joy to those that were involved in it. It was very different from the modern view of the church. 
And when we look at Scripture, we see the church in general, which is God's body of believers throughout the entire world. But then we see local expressions of that, which we would call the local church. And this local church is what we're reading about here in Acts 2. And it's something that is unparalleled in society. And it has so much to offer. And it's unfortunate that a negative reputation has often kept people from experiencing all that it has to offer. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM in Durango and KDUR.org online. I'm excited that you're listening. I discussed how the church in many instances has rightfully earned a very poor reputation. I described some of the surveys that we've done that indicate that people have a very high view of Jesus, but a very low view of his followers and the church. I discussed some of the reasons for that, some of them valid, others misconceptions, all relevant nonetheless. And the fact that the church is not today necessarily what it was meant to be. We discussed the biblical definition of a church, and we discussed the biblical example of a church. I explained how there are some examples of that in society today, and I would encourage you to be a part of such a thing, and to realize that the negative misconceptions about the church are not what the church is supposed to be. I talk to students all the time that say, I'm going to have a relationship with God on my own, but I don't need the church. And I always tell them, it's important to remember that Jesus, as far as I know, only mentioned church twice in all of his teachings. This was not the focus of his ministry. He was focused on seeking and saving the lost, Scripture says. He was focused on relationships with human beings. He was focused on paying the penalty of our sins so that all who believe in him could be saved and experience an eternity with him in heaven and abundant life here on this planet. And the church plays a role in that, but it's not the first thing. It's not the most important thing, but it is important nonetheless. Now that we've talked about some of the negative perspectives on the church and clarified that with the biblical perspective of the church, I wanted to conclude this show by talking about some of the values of the church. And of course, this doesn't apply to all churches because there are many churches today that are just as bad as the negative reputation many have in their minds. So I would encourage you to find a good, Bible-believing, loving church. And those types of churches, and I'll close out the show giving you a list of several in the area, should exemplify these following values. One, community. The Bible talks about the need for corporate togetherness, expressions of our faith. We live in an individualistic society that is very different from the one in which the Bible was written. And it's very empty as well. The Bible intends for us corporately to grow together, to love each other, to love God together. And the church is a place where we can corporately do that. This leads to positive and authentic relationships that are unparalleled in society. You're not going to find these kinds of relationships at a bar. This leads to support. No matter what you might be going through, you have an army of people behind you that are supporting you as you walk through it. Members in our church recently lost a family member, and they have been overwhelmed with support by people in the church. Additionally, the church provides a component of 
family. It is an extended family that's there for you no matter what. In fact, the Bible often refers to the church as the family of God. And you can have deep friendships with Christian family members in church that you could never even have with your own family. So it provides something that is lacking in society. At the core of this, and kind of appealing to the American individualism, there is a sense of belonging in the church. You have a place and a role. The Bible says that no one is insignificant in the church, that everyone has something to contribute, and that the church suffers when its members aren't each contributing. So in the church, we each have a role to play and significance. That leads to this issue of fellowship. I mentioned authentic friendships and relationships, and that's important, but fellowship goes further than that. It includes accountability to live in integrity. Some of the negative reputations of the church that we've discussed in the past occurred precisely because there was a lack of accountability. And within the church, we can actually have that accountability so that when I get kind of off track, I'll have friends that love me enough to challenge me and to bring that to my attention and to help me live in integrity. Additionally, there's a challenge to action that's involved in fellowship. The Bible calls this spurring each other on to love and good deeds. When we come together as a group of believers, we challenge each other to more than we would challenge ourselves to without each other. We see others as examples, and we want to do similar things. We hear good teaching, and we want to apply it in our lives. All of these things contribute to a challenge to positive action that is found in the fellowship that exists in the church. There's also spiritual growth that occurs in the church. We get to learn God's word in a systematic way, in a thorough way, in such a way that we grow corporately and together and individually in our knowledge of God's word, often at a deeper level than your average person could accomplish on their own. There is a solid capacity to grow in your faith within the church structure. And I'm not just talking about during the Sunday morning service. Most churches have other opportunities throughout the week to grow deeper in your faith. And you'll also come face to face with many other people that are growing in their faith and have the ability to learn from them about what they're learning. So all this creates an opportunity for spiritual growth that we just don't get on our own. And additionally, this is pertinent for people from the whole family or from any age or part of life. Our church, for example, the River Church, has children's church with all different grade levels and opportunities for each of my kids to grow at their level and for my wife and I to grow at our level and for others to grow at their levels. So there is relevant growth opportunity for everyone across the entire spectrum of society. There's also opportunity for impact. The church has been the initiator of so much good throughout history. We always hear of the bad again, but very rarely do we hear of the good. Hospitals, charities, schools, universities, and so much more have been initiated, caused, and born out of the church. And the church today continues to be actively involved in so many aspects of society. In fact, most churches have involvement in their communities in greater ways than an individual could accomplish alone. And as you get involved in a church, you have opportunity for impact in your society and in your community 
that you would probably not have otherwise. So these have just been a few of the relevant reasons to get involved in a local church. Now, with all that being said, and again, just clarifying, the church has a very poor reputation in society, and it's deserved that in many instances. And I'm sorry if you've been negatively offended by the church. That's not God's will. God's desire for the church is that it would be his body in this world, functioning as he does, loving as he does, reaching out as he does, and it's fallen far short of that. Now, there are a few churches that I know personally are examples of that right here in our community, and I wanted to close out the show letting you know about a few of those. So if you want to write down a few of these churches in case you want to visit them, I'd encourage you to get a paper and pen and write down some of these churches. One is New Hope right here in Durango. They meet at the Storyteller Durango Theater, and they meet at 9.30 a.m. on Sundays, so you could even join them this morning. New Hope is a great church. Dana is a man of God that will love you for who you are and help you take the steps God wants you to take. The church that I attend is the River Church. They meet at 860 Plymouth Drive in Durango, right off of Florida Road, and they meet there every Sunday at 11 a.m. You could join them this morning. Pastor Mark is an incredible guy that I've known for much more than a decade. He's a man of integrity. He's authentic like you've never seen somebody be authentic. And he will love you passionately for who you are and help you grow in your faith. Another great church in our town is First Baptist. They meet on the southeast corner of East 3rd Avenue and 11th Street. And they'll meet there this morning and every Sunday at 1045 a.m. Jeff Dobesh leads that church, and he is just an incredible brother. You'll love him a ton. Calvary Chapel meets at 1775 Florida Road. That's the Seventh-day Adventist church building, and they meet there Sundays at 9.30 a.m. You could catch them still this morning. They are a great church, and I'd encourage you to check them out. Also, Grace Church is a great church. They meet at 1440 Florida Road right down at the bottom of the College Hill at 10.45 a.m. I'd encourage you to check out Grace Church. Also, Gospel Church and Tom Thiessen meet right on Main Street Sunday mornings, and I'd encourage you to give them a shot as well. They're an incredible church. That's in Durango. There are a few churches in the surrounding area that I'd like to mention as well. In Bayfield, there's Bayfield First Baptist. The pastor is Randy Ash. He's an incredible guy. They meet at the intersection of Bayfield Parkway and County Road 521, which is also known as Buck Highway. They meet there at 1030 a.m. In Ignacio, Ignacio Community Church is a great church, and they meet at 405 Browning Avenue at 1030 a.m. And Ignacio First Baptist is also an incredible church, and they're just a couple blocks away from ICC. Those are a few different churches in the area that I can personally suggest and personally vouch for. Again, New Hope, the River Church, First Baptist here in Durango, Calvary Chapel, and Grace Church, and Gospel Church in Durango. In Bayfield, there's Bayfield First Baptist, and in Ignacio, there's Ignacio Community Church and Ignacio First Baptist. They're all great churches. The most important thing, though, and I've mentioned this throughout the show, the church is important, but it's secondary to Jesus Christ and a relationship with him. Jesus invites you today to join him in that relationship. If you put your faith and trust in him, you'll be adopted into his family. 
You can do that right now by saying, Jesus, I need you. Please come into my life. Please forgive my sins. Please be my Savior and Lord. And please make me the kind of person that you want me to be. Thank you for adopting me into your family. The Bible says when you put your faith in him and when you confess that with your mouth and when you open the door to him through prayer like I just mentioned, receiving him into your life as Savior and Lord, you'll be adopted into his family and you can experience the abundant life of meaning, purpose, and significance that he planned for you here on this planet and an eternity with him afterwards in heaven. That is incredible. And that's the most important message of Christianity. The next step, however, is to grow with other believers. We can come into saving relationship with Christ on our own, personally, just between me and Christ. But my growth will be severely limited if I don't join a group of believers and grow in community as well. Remember, like I always say every single week, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And that's my hope, that you'll find him this morning if you haven't already. And my hope is that if you do know Jesus, that you'll begin to love others the way he does, repairing the church's historical bad reputation. I hope you got a lot out of the show today, and I hope you have an incredible Sunday afternoon. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>